we have a we have a guest with us this morning. If you're here for Sunday school, uh, you know that uh, Jeff comes to us from down Colorado Springs away, right? And uh, and he's come to share the word. Our pastor Corey Clark is uh, he's off on the road. His daughter's rodeo, and when I talked to him this morning, he was walking breakaway calf roping, and uh, so that's just something that that. Uh, it's a blessing for him to be able to go and kind of take a rest and kind of recoup and, and re revive himself, I guess, uh, so that he can be the best vessel for God's Word when he comes back. And so we're excited for him that he can go do that. And his greatest ministry is right there in his family. And so that's what he's doing. He's taking care of them and, and going and, and helping his kids chase their dreams and doing those things. So this morning, um, we have Jeff come on up. Uh, and he is going to bring us the Word this morning. So... Uh, make him welcome, and, and uh, if it's anything like it was this morning, you're going to hear some truth guaranteed. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hey, we're going to go ahead and practice for uh, Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. All right, if you don't know that, 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 that's a good tradition. If I just say, He is risen, and you respond, He is risen indeed, that's a good way. And now you'll be prepared for a couple of weeks. Hey, let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning, please. We just want the Word of God to minister to us. Romans chapter 8. This is a little unusual, but I'm going to read that whole chapter. And it's a long chapter. As a matter of fact, when you read that chapter, you're going to hear a lot of verses that you have heard before or are familiar with. Um, but maybe you didn't put them all together that they're from Romans chapter 8. So I'm going to ask us if we can stand with reverence for God and His Holy Word. And if there's a particular verse that just uh, resonates with you, and you just want to say amen to the Word of the Lord, please feel free to just respond and say amen to some of these great truths. All right, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole thing aloud. I'm reading from the New King James just so you have an idea. You follow along in your own Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it would weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Amen. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. But we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Amen. Now he who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Amen. Amen. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated? Listen, just a reminder to you that the most important thing you're going to hear this morning is the word of God that we just spent some time to honor and to hear. How do you not love a chapter that begins, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And it ends by telling us that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. What a great, great chapter. This chapter is filled with a lot of verses that you've probably already heard or are familiar with. Come on, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. That we have the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The fact that the Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And I don't know if you've noticed all of this, but this passage is filled with references to the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, 19 different times it talks about the Holy Spirit. And in those 19 different times, he's in the most condensed way in all of the Scripture, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of a believer. He's telling us that we as believers have, have this Holy Spirit's ministry of, of emancipation. He frees us from sin and death. The Spirit's ministry of transformation by which He changes us, our mind, our nature, our actions. He changes us from the inside out. 
The Holy Spirit's ministry of adoption by which He receives us as children. Holy Spirit's ministry of consolation by which He comforts us even in our weaknesses or in our struggles. The Holy Spirit's ministry of preservation. He keeps us. All of this chapter is filled with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Within that ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're going to focus our attention today on the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who not, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak according to the flesh, God did. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You come to this passage and it begins by there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have three qualifiers that we have to bring attention to. Therefore. The word therefore is now pointing back. And it's pointing us back not just to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul asked a question. He said, I, I agree with the law that it's holy and just and good. I, I like what the Bible says, but I find that I'm not able to live. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. This Christian life is frustrating. Who's going to deliver me from this law of sin and death? Who's going to deliver me? Well, the answer comes by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But the therefore is not just pointing back to chapter 7. It's pointing all the way back to the first words of the book of Romans. That's why he could say there is therefore now the word now is telling us that we're in a position where now we're not condemned before God. But listen, before we were in Jesus, there was nothing but condemnation. And in order for us to really rejoice in this truth, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think we've got to go back and we've got to realize that before you became a Christian, before you were filled with the Holy Spirit of God, before you were born again, not just born by the flesh, but born of the Spirit, he said, before you came into Christ Jesus, there's nothing but condemnation. Let's hear this. In Romans chapter 1, there's a message of condemnation. It's a message that's telling us that apart from Jesus Christ, there's nothing but condemnation and separation from God. And he begins by telling us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. To say that they're without excuse means that ultimately people stand condemned. Now, you have to have the imagery of the judge who's sitting upon a bench. And when the judge is looking up here and he's looking down at a defendant, He's looking at a defendant who's going to be condemned as being guilty. And that defendant that's being condemned as guilty, the first one, is someone who's characterized by being ungodly and unrighteous. See, the ungodly and unrighteous, their mouth is stopped. They have no answer. They are standing guilty before God. And so we're talking about the, what I'm going to call the guilt of the unrighteous. Now, the guilt of the unrighteous is whereas we as Christians a lot of times can just say amen. We're like, yes, exactly. Any of those people who deny God... Well, what kind of people deny God? In the passage of Scripture, he talks about how some people act as if there is no God. They deny the very presence of God. But then there are other people who are not only following the godlessness or the ungodliness of atheism, maybe there's the ungodliness of polytheism. The Bible says that they've taken an incorruptible God and they've made Him into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. He's talking about the creation of 
of idols, the creation of false gods. And that in itself is also a rejection of God. Because there's some people who say there is no God, and that leads to consequences. But then there's other people who say there's many gods. And ultimately, if you're saying many gods, then you're saying that there is really no ultimate God. But then there's also the ungodliness of pantheism. A pantheism, it says, that they have, stopped they have stopped worshiping the Creator, and they worship the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Listen, that kind of ungodliness of the people who think that everything around us is God. We worship the sun and the moon and the stars and the world that's around us, and ultimately they come to a different form of ungodliness. But here's what I want you to know. When God condemns ungodly people, He's condemning them for not only rejecting the one true God, but the rejection of the one true God always leads to unrighteousness. By the unrighteousness, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, Therefore God has given them over to uncleanness so that they defile their bodies between themselves. Here's what I want to remind everyone. There's so much immorality in the world that's around us to the point where some people don't even think adultery is unrighteous. They don't even think that premarital sex is unrighteous. As a matter of fact, there's so much confusion out there now. Sometimes you get you got to get point blank and you have to tell young people that all different forms of defiling your body with someone else other than your spouse before you're married, all of those defiling of your body is something that's immoral and is displeasing to God. The Bible says flee youthful lust. Run away from those things. Don't try to create any kind of temptation of your flesh. And the Bible makes it clear, and I repeated this from Sunday school, but the Bible says that he who sins against his body or he who commits fornication is sinning against his own body. He's coming and telling us that unrighteousness, like immorality, is the result of ungodliness. Now, let's make this little step a little bit further. There's a reason the people are running around and acting like there are no sexual rules or standards or any kind of moral guidance. Because ungodliness, when they go to a classroom that teaches them that there is no creator, that everything is a, the end of, or the product of random chance, when they say that there's no creator but evolution is the root way we all got here, and then they go to another class that talks about how there's no really God in any kind of history, and when they teach ungodliness, Ultimately, that ungodliness is now leading them to a life of immorality. And what we're seeing around us today, including the kind of, the kind of confusion regarding sexual identity or even gender identity, that's something that's coming as a result of rejecting God. When you reject God, you reject His Word, then it leads to a life that the Bible describes not only that God gave them up to uncleanness, but it says that God gives them up to vile passions. See, the book of Romans is talking about something that affects us today. He said, for even the women reject the natural use of, of, the, of the man. And he said, likewise, men burning in their lust toward one another reject the natural use of the woman. They burn in their lust toward one another and they receive in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. If we think that transgenderism and homosexuality is something that's only been created in the last 30 years, you've got another thing coming. You can go all the way back to the Bible and recognize that there have always been people who forget God and therefore they turn away from what God has said and they give themselves to things that are just not healthy. you got to hear this for young people here in the room today. There's no doubt when you have this many young people and this many young families, there's no doubt that there are people who have questions about, hey, what about gender identity and, and homosexuality? What, what's the problem with all of that? Here's, here's the issue. God has created you in His own image. 
So whether you're a male or whether you're a female, the Bible says that you were specially created in the image of God. That means as I'm looking to the back row that's back there, you are not the product of random chance through evolution. But it was God himself who knew you, and he knew you by name before you were ever born. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He knows everything about you. And you were so fearfully and wonderfully made that being created in the image of God gives dignity and meaning and purpose. Right now, Jeff, we are having a crisis in Colorado with youth suicide. Part of the reason we're having so, so much hopelessness among our young people is because we've been telling them that they're, they're, that they're the product of random chance and that they're just like any other biological creature. You have no more value than a, a, an animal that's out there. Wait a second. I want you as young people to know this. You have dignity and purpose and value and meaning and your life means something. You hear me, guy? What I want you to know is that you're creating the image of God and that your life is special, that God knows everything about you, and that there's dignity and value and purpose. And I don't want anyone in this room to think that somehow there's a hopelessness. I want all of our young people to know that your life means something. But I also want you to know that God created you male and female. And right now, the question that we're having in our country and all the confusion is because we have defied God. We don't think that God has any right being in marriage because God doesn't define marriage. The Supreme Court defines marriage. And if the Supreme Court defines marriage, well, you know what? Anyone can live together. We stand against that by coming back and saying there is a God and that He's created us. He knows how we best function and He is the one who has given us the idea that one man and one woman should be joined together for a lifetime in a marriage covenant. And that's the only proper and safe place for sexual experience for, for sexual union, for the sex satisfaction that comes from what God has created and what God has given us. I'm taking a long time to deal with chapter 1, and forgive me for this, but I'm trying to deal with the issues of our day. And I'm telling you, with all the confusion of our day, we need to know that there is a condemnation of the people who live godless and unrighteous life. And sometimes it's easy to say, oh yeah, preach it, Jeff, about all those bad sinners out there. Wait a second. The message of condemnation continues in chapter 2 when it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For when whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You see, when it comes to standing before God, the righteous judge is not only wicked people that need a Savior, it's also self-righteous, judgmental people. It can be moral people. The kind of moral people who said, hey, thank God that I'm not struggling with this sin or that sin or this temptation. Wait a second. The Bible comes and says that you are also inexcusable, that your mouth is stopped before God, even if you are self-righteous. But in Matthew chapter, or I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 2, going into Romans chapter 3, there's also a condemnation of the religious righteous. By the religious righteous, he said, therefore, you, you call yourself a Jew. And you think that you're a guide to those that are lost. You're a light to those that are in darkness. You're a teacher of babes. And then he comes and says, but don't you know that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly and circumcision is not outward of the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart. You see, he's been now coming and telling us that there's a condemnation of the unrighteous, wicked people. There's a condemnation of the self-righteous, judgmental people. But there's also a condemnation of the religious people. And here's the conclusion. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. We have all gone astray. The Bible comes and says it, that every mouth is stopped and the whole world becomes guilty before God. Now, I can read it in your eyes. Some of you are like, wait a second, Jim. When are you going to get to the good news that there is therefore now no condemnation? Let's get to it. Because the only way that the good news is encouraging is when we recognize that apart from Jesus, there's nothing but condemnation. 
There's condemnation of religious people. There's condemnation of moral and self-righteous people. There's condemnation of ungodly and wicked people. There's condemnation of all until we get to Romans 3, 24, which says, Therefore, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has made to be the propitiation for our sins. Will you bear with me? To understand that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God comes to a world in which everyone is condemned, needing a Savior because of our sin, because we're separated from God. But come and hear this great news that there is justification, that there is redemption, that there is propitiation. And in order to help define and describe for you propitiation, please hear this illustration. There are two brothers who had immigrated to the United States from China. This was back in the 1800s. When they first had come, you, you have the stories or the pictures of people who had come and worked on railroads across America, or many of them settled in California and San Francisco. Well, these brothers settled into the San Francisco area, and apparently this story is true according to California state records. The older brother, he soon embraced the American life and the American dream. He had a great job, he had a good apartment, everything was going well for him, but the younger brother, he went to a life of crime. And that young brother was always running around getting in trouble. And one day, that young Chinese boy was in a back alley gambling with some people and figured out that someone was stealing from him. They're cheating in the game and they're stealing his money. And so he became so angry, they got into a fist fight. During that fist fight, a knife was drawn and the other man was stabbed numerous times and he was killed. So here's this young immigrant who has blood all over his clothes. The evidence is there. He has witnesses that have seen what has happened. He knew that in America the police would be coming pretty soon and when the police arrested him that he was going to face the gallows. He'd be hung by his neck. That's what they did to murderers at that time. So he ran away to the only place he could think of. He went running to his brother's apartment. He climbed in through a window. He took off all those bloody clothes and he left them in a pile. He washed himself and he ran away to hide. About the same time, the older brother was, was coming home from work. He had heard that there had been a murder. He had seen the police going door by door, knocking through the doors in the neighborhood looking for something, and he knew, he knew there had been trouble. When he got into his house and he finds a pile of bloody clothes, he figured out that it was his kid brother who was in such a big problem. His kid brother was the one who committed the murder. He didn't have enough time to destroy those clothes. He didn't have enough time to get rid of the evidence, so he did something really strange. He took those clothes and he put them on. When he put them on, the police came and they started knocking at the door. When he opened the door and the police found him in this pile of bloody clothes with people, he matched the description. He had this pile of bloody clothes. All he had to do was say to the police officers, Officer, it wasn't me. It was my brother. Go arrest him. But without saying a word, he was arrested in his brother's place. The day came when he stood before a judge. And when he stood before the judge and the judge gave all the evidence and all the indications that were there, all he had to do was say, Your Honor, it wasn't me. It was my brother. But he, without saying a word, he received a guilty verdict in his brother's place. They sentenced him to death. They marched him up on the gallows. And when they marched him up on the gallows, someone came and they put a, a noose around his neck. They put a black mask over his face. All he had to say to the executioner is saying, Sir, it wasn't me, it was my little brother. He's the one who really committed the crime, but without saying anything, he died in his brother's place. To die in his brother's place is exactly what the Bible calls propitiation. It's the word substitute, and that's what Jesus did for us. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says that that that. He bore out this burden for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. The, 
the uh, trespass or the chastening for the trespass was upon him. It's by his stripes that we are healed. You see, when Jesus died, he didn't die because of anything that he had done to deserve it. He died as a substitute. And when Jesus died as a substitute, the illustration I'm talking about is a brother who is a substitute who dies in his brother's place. That's what Jesus did. Jesus comes to be a substitute who dies in the place of all these guilty brothers. Now, let me tell you a little more about that story. Because just after his brother had been executed in his place, that young brother felt so guilty about what he did. He turned himself into the same police. He stood before the same judge and he told the judge the whole story. When he told the judge the whole story, the judge looked down at him. This is true by California state records. The judge looked down and he said, Young man, I know from the testimony of your own mouth that you're the one who's truly guilty of this crime. But this court is satisfied because the punishment has already been paid. And even though you are guilty, you are free to go. My friends, that is an example of justification. The justification that's described in the Bible is when God, the righteous judge, looks down and he declares guilty sinners not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. And to be a guilty sinner is declared not guilty doesn't mean that God just kind of says, ah, you know what, it's okay. I'm just going to kind of wink over your sin. I'm going to minimize it. No big deal. No, no, it's a big deal. As a matter of fact, it's such a big deal, but God looks down and He says, I know from the testimony of your own mouth that you are guilty and that you are condemned because you are under sin. And it doesn't matter, people, if you're ungodly and unrighteous or wicked, worst wicked of sinners, or it doesn't matter if you're self-righteous and, 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 and judgmental of other people. And it doesn't matter if you're religious. According to this passage, God looks at everyone that's all condemned. There's, every mouth is stopped. But when God comes and says, I know from the testimony of your own mouth, you're the one who's really committed these crimes. But listen to this. This court is satisfied because the punishment has already been paid. And my friends, that punishment had been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ so that now we can rejoice that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now is the time to say hallelujah. Someone's like, Jeff, you took a sure you sure took a long time to get there, man. That was a lot of bad news. Wait a second. The good news isn't that good until you realize how bad the bad news is, right? And that bad news is telling us that we're all condemned and under sin. But now we can come to this glorious hope that all of us who've been falling short of the glory of God, that all of us can now face no condemnation because of Christ Jesus who is the substitute for our sins so that we can be justified freely by His grace. Now, you've got to hear this, especially if you're young people. Frankly, you need to hear this even if you're an old person. Justification is not something you ever earn or deserve by your moral activity or by your religious activity or by your good works or by keeping the rules and keeping the law. He says you're justified freely. To be justified freely tells us that this salvation happens by grace alone. Can anyone say that with me? By grace alone. To me, by grace alone means that it's freely given to us because of God's action of love and mercy toward us. But not only justified by grace alone, we're justified by faith alone. He said we're justified freely by His grace, received by faith. You see, even Abraham, the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That means that if you believe on it now, you say, well, Jeff, we're justified by grace alone, but we're also justified by faith alone. Can anyone say that? By faith alone. But what is that faith placed in? He said we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That means that we place our faith in one Savior, Jesus, and he is the only Savior. Young people, maybe you've been on Google. 
And maybe you're hearing all about Hinduism, you're hearing all about Islam, you're hearing about all different forms of Christianity, and you've gotten all confused, and you're like, wait a second, what is it that makes Christianity unique? Why should I put my faith in this? Here's why. Because there's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And no matter what other religion you go to, there is only one substitute who died for our sin. There's only one Savior who can cleanse you from sin. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. This is what makes our message unique, and don't ever question or doubt. If you will put your faith in Jesus alone, wait a second. I'm telling you the salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that faith is placed in Jesus Christ alone. Hey, can any of you grandmas and grandpas give me a good amen and help me on this one? Because there's children all over around here who need to recognize the good news that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything I've done so far is summarizing verse 1. But I want to go into verse 2 because it says this. It says, For the law of the life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. By the way, there's some people here today we're trying to write notes, and you're like, Jeff, man, you're frustrating me. I can't follow because you're talking too fast. I can't take all the notes for this kind of thing. Hold on just a second. Uh, I put all this together in a book. It's called Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is a, is a summary or a commentary on Romans chapter 8. It talks about all these ministries of the Holy Spirit, including many verses that I'm not going to get to today. If you're tired of trying to follow notes, well, here's good news. Notes for you. Now, I've got $10 invested into this book as far as paying editors and people to make it look nice and make sure my spelling is right. If you don't have $10 in it and you just want to take one, I want you to have one. If you would like one, I'd like you to just take one. They're available up here. If you're able to kind of pitch in 10 bucks and help cover the cost, great. If not, just take one. But if this can be a blessing to you, I want you to have them. They're available right up here, all right? So, coming back to this, life in the Spirit. He comes now and talks about this work of the Holy Spirit by which he says... The Spirit does inside of us what the law of sin and death can't do from the outside. Now, would you bear with me that I'm going to change gears? I'm going to change gears from just talking about the wonderful news that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I want to take another step. Because there's some people who think, oh, you know what? Salvation. If salvation is just justification and God declaring a guilty sinner not guilty, then that's all I want. But here's what I want you to know. Salvation is even more than that. Because salvation is not just a transaction. It's not just talking about a, a standing before God. Salvation is a newness of life. You see, this phrase keeps getting repeated. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus means that you have a new nature, a new position. You have a new standing. That You have a new life. Jesus put it this way when He says this. You must be born again. To be born again means to be born of the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is indwelling me. And now I don't just have forgiveness of sin, people. I don't just have a home in heaven and an escape from hell. I have newness of life. And what I want to celebrate with you for a minute is the newness of life by which, according to Romans chapter 6, since I have newness of life, I have a new relationship with sin. And the sin is no longer a master over me. I can have victory in my Christian life. Not only do I have a new relationship with the law, my, my relationship with Jesus is not formed by rules or regulations or laws. I have a freedom from the law. I have a victory over sin. But then I have a new relationship to the Spirit. And the Spirit of God in me is doing what the law can never do. Now, bear with me. Here's a quick summary. The law of sin and death is basically summarizing all of the Ten Commandments. The, law, uh, the Ten Commandments were written on stones 
So there's two tablets of stone that God himself wrote on. Those Ten Commandments all summarize two basic ideas. As a matter of fact, someone said, hey, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, what is it? He, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, so to love the Lord your God, that's summarizing the first four commandments. No other God before me. No graven images. Remember the Sabbath day. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. All of that is telling you how to love the Lord your God. But then, Jesus said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So to love your neighbor as yourself is a summary of all the six. In my opinion, I don't know that this is true. I just kind of imagine it this way. I think it sounds about right. But I think one of those tablets of stone says, first four commandments, love God. I think the second stone says, next six commandments, love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? By honoring your father and your mother, by not committing murder, not committing adultery, not stealing, not uh, bearing false witness, not coveting. So we're summarizing them all. Now, I'm going to make it easy for you. All of those Ten Commandments can be remembered by two. Love God, love your neighbor. Now let me make it really simple. There's one word that summarizes all of the law. It's this word, love. All right? Love God, love your neighbor. Here's the problem, Jeff. They can all be written on stones, but they never gave anyone the ability to fulfill it. Because even though it's God's command, even though lots of people try to follow God's commands, no one was able to do it. Here's what the passage says. The law, what the law could not do, and that it was weak according to the flesh. You see, he could tell us to love God and love our neighbor, but he couldn't help us to do it so that no one was able to keep the law. That's why in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36, the Bible was promising a new covenant. The Bible said, I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Here's what he says. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And when I put my spirit within you, I am going to fulfill the laws and the statutes and the judgments of God. I'm going to fulfill it from inside of you because the law couldn't do it from the outside of you. Is everyone tracking with me? The whole reason we need a new covenant is because in the Old Testament... The Spirit of God was there, but the Spirit of God would come upon someone. Let me describe it to you like this. The Holy Spirit of God would come upon someone and say, hey, I'm going to help you for this specific task, like building the tabernacle. I'm going to come upon you for a specific task, like Samson experienced. But here's the deal. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God could come upon you, but He could also be taken away from you. That's why David prayed in Psalm 51, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You know why he prayed that? Because it was a very real possibility that the Spirit of God who might come upon you could also be taken away from you. But the Old Testament anticipated a better covenant, a better day in which the Spirit of God would not just come upon you, but here's what he said, I will put my Spirit within you. This is pretty awesome, people. Pretty awesome. So the Old Testament anticipated a better relationship with the Spirit, the Spirit of God in us, but that's also true in the Gospels. Remember during the Gospel, with the Holy Spirit there? Of course He was. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus when He was baptized, remember? Descended upon Him like a dove. Jesus was led by the Spirit out of the wilderness. But here's the words of Jesus. In John 14, then again in John chapter 16. In John 16, Jesus says to His disciples, It is to your advantage that I depart and go to my Father in heaven. Wait a second. It's to our advantage that we don't have Jesus with us? Is there anyone here that would have lived, liked to live during the time of Jesus? I mean, he's walking around healing people. He's walking around calming the wind and the waves. He's raising people from the dead. He's feeding 5,000 people. How could it possibly be to our advantage, Jesus, that you leave us? You've been doing all these great things. Here's how he explained it. He said, when I leave you, I'm going to receive the gift of the Father, and I'm going to send him down. And here's what he says. The Spirit of God who has been with you will be 
in you. You see, even during the Gospels, when Jesus was there, the Spirit of God was with them because Jesus was with them. But they needed something better. Is everyone tracking with me? Old Testament, the Spirit of God could come upon you, but they were looking for something better, the Spirit of God in them. During the Gospels, the life of Jesus, the Spirit of God was with them, but they were looking for something better. Jesus said, the Spirit of God has been with you, but He will be in you. Can I give you good news? If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you receive not only forgiveness of your sin and a home in heaven, but people you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've been born again. To be born again means that the Spirit of God is dwelling inside of you. What? No, you're not. You're the temple of the Spirit of God who dwells in you. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that the newness of life that Jesus has given you by faith in Him, that that newness of life is doing something from inside of you that the law could never do from the outside. Are you ready to track with me? Remember something called the fruit of the Spirit? The Bible said, if you live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you're going to bear fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. Now, let's, let's forget about joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, and the others. Let's come back to this simple one. Is everyone ready? The, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is Love. Excuse me one more time. The fruit of the Spirit is? Love. You see, the Spirit of God is producing from inside of you what the law could never produce from the outside of you. So let me quote this whole thing to you again, give you perspective. When you've been born again, when you've been born again and the Spirit of God is indwelling you, according to this passage, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can someone say amen? amen? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Can anyone say amen to that? For what the law could not do because it was weak according to the flesh, God did. And He did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So that, hear what He says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Here's what that means. That means that the law matters. That means that all of what God had said as far as loving God and loving your neighbor, all those specifics, they all matter. However, only by the Spirit of God can we learn to love in the way that the Old Testament told us that we should love. He says this, and I'm going to just repeat it because it's so important. He says, he says that the righteous requirement of the law, that's love, love for God, love for your neighbor, that it can be fulfilled in you who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me bring all this to a summary, Jeff, and we'll wrap our time up today. Here's where it all ends, people. We have no condemnation because of Christ Jesus. And I hope that if there's anyone who never understood the gospel that we're talking about, we're not talking about church membership, we're not talking about rule-keeping or law-keeping or turning over a new moral deed. We're talking about someone who comes and says, Yes, Jesus, I accept you as my substitute. I know that you died and took my sin and penalty, and God, I receive that not guilty standing because I have received Jesus. But here's the other thing. I want you to know that you don't just receive forgiveness of sin. You're also receiving newness of life. And within that newness of life, maybe some of us need to be encouraged that this Christian life is not about rules and regulations. You can say amen to that, somebody, for me, please. This Christian life is not about rules and regulations. It's not about rituals. This Christian life is about the Spirit of God doing something from inside of us that cannot happen from the outside. Husbands, have you ever thought of this? When God tells you to love your wife as Christ loved the church, how in the world can you do that? Only by walking in the Spirit.
The Spirit of God wants to do something from inside of you that you can't do from the outside. Listen, people, what the world around us desperately needs, they need some love. They need some real love. They need genuine God-given love. They need Holy Spirit-filled Christians that are exemplifying what we just talked about. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jeff, I'm going to turn it back over to you and let you close us in a word of prayer. I've got nothing more to say about this passage of Scripture. God bless you all. Thank you. I don't want to uh, not have an opportunity like, like we are, are used to doing at the end of the service. I'm going to ask the music team to come up because I think we have a song ready to sing. And uh, it's also a time, and Corey, Pastor Corey is, is, uh, shares this with you at the end of every sermon and gives you an opportunity to uh, just come, at, come forward if you want to and, and have a time of prayer here. These pews are almost always open. Nobody sits in the front row. And you can come and sit in this pew or whatever you like to do during during the song. And, and uh, someone, uh, an elder, could come and sit beside you if you want prayer. Or if you just want to be by yourself, that's all right, too. Sometimes it just means a little something to separate and, and uh, seek God in that time. So this is open during that time. I want, can't stress that enough, so we want to do, make that available to you. And uh, But again, um, thank you uh, for paying attention and being here and, and uh, what a wonderful time of uh, worship we've had today. We're going to sing a song here to close out.